0: I speak to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. As Larry was reading, the epistle phrase jumped out at me. We no longer regard anyone from a human point of view. That sums up what I feel I want to talk about this morning. And I've entitled my little talk, The Seen, the Unseen, and the Obscene. We all seem to adopt a worldview that aligns with what seems right to us, in our minds. And this last week, we saw a 20-year-old man whose worldview motivated him to deliberately drive onto a sidewalk, killing four people and injuring a child because they looked and believed differently. And apparently, he found this laughable as he got out of his truck to look at his carnage our shock is instant and obvious. And while he somehow thought he was right or justified in doing this, our cultural majority is in shock and horror at how wrong it is. And our condolences and determination to support diversity in our culture is catapulted to the top of our awareness. May it find action in connection and friendship, with those outside our inner circle. And better yet, let's enlarge the circle towards a single circle, humanity and creation. This is the sacred circle. However, sometimes the right and the wrong is not so obvious in the immediacy of an action. Often we only see the wrong in hindsight, And this hindsight brings us to the necessity of truth and reconciliation, not just as an act in time, but perhaps as a way of life. And while we've known about the wrongness and abuse of the residential schools for some time, the discovery of over 200 unmarked graves at a Kamloops facility has not always been vocalized as a wrong or as a terrorist act or even genocide. This is a wrong that we have increasingly acknowledged in hindsight. However, when the residential system was begun by our white culture, the government, the Church, thought it was the correct thing to do, and they became complicit in it. And as a child, I heard support for this program from politicians, pastors, teachers, parents— It was for their own good. Listen to these stated goals of the residential school program as verbalized by Bishop Gradine in 1875. At the time, us colonial participants generally supported it, and our churches often replied, Amen. This is what he said. We instill in them a pronounced distaste for the native life so that they will be humiliated when reminded of their origin. When they graduate from our institutions, the children have lost everything native except their blood. That sounds so wrong to us now, but it didn't to our culture, government, and church at the time. In fact, in some cases, we convinced those we abused that this was in their best interest. Or listen to these words of our first Prime Minister, whose image as a significant contributor to colonial life in Canada is unraveling because of the formation of the residential school program. He said this, When the school is on the reserve, the child lives with its parents, who are savages. And though he may learn to read and write, his habits and training mode of thought are Indian. He is simply a savage who can read and write. It has been strongly impressed upon myself as head of the department that Indian children should be withdrawn as much as possible from their parental influence. And the only way to do that would be to put them in central training institutions, central training industrial schools, where they will acquire the habits and modes of thought of white men. When civic and religious values decide on the right together, they often become blind to the evil inherent in the actions that follow. And they also tend to co-opt the power of divinity as a support for that evil. They see it as a calling supported by the divine. Our history is full of this. Just listen to this justification for the Crusades from Pope Urban II. I speak to those who are present. I shall proclaim it to the silent or the absent. But it is Christ who commands... Moreover, if those who set out thither lose their lives on this journey by land or sea, or in fighting against the heathen, their sins shall be remitted in that hour. This I grant through the power of God vested in me. Or these words from an interred Japanese-American that also reflects our Canadian reality at the time. He said... We have no one to go for help, not even a church. Anything goes now that our President Roosevelt signed the order to get rid of us. How can he do that to his own citizens? No lawyer has the courage to defend us. Caucasian friends stay away for fear of being labeled Jap lovers. There's not a more lonely feeling than to be banished by my own country. There's no place to go. Our history, world history, has found many ways to sanctify these evils. Japanese internment, Italian internment, treatment of children and families arriving at our borders, our disdain for the marginalized, even our blessed image of being soldiers of Christ or winning souls for Christ— Since when has the spiritual life become about winning? As if evangelism is a contest and we're keeping score. And these attitudes often come from a manipulative orientation rather than a contemplative orientation. Alan Jones, the former dean of Grace Cathedral in San Francisco, said it well We either contemplate or we exploit. We either see things in persons with reverence and awe and therefore treat them as genuinely other than ourselves, or we appropriate them and manipulate them for our own purpose. This mentality, this manipulative mentality, tells us that natives are okay as long as they become like us. Italians are okay as long as they become like us. The Japanese are okay as long as they become like us. Immigrants are okay as long as they become like us. Marginalized people need help as long as they become like us. Even uneducated people are okay as long as they become like us. And when they don't easily become like us, we tend to find ways to manipulate or manipulate or even force them to. And sometimes we have called this evangelism. But let's not feel smug about our current feelings or abhorrence for past wrongs and our current rightness. Who are the people we think should change to look like us now? What are the things we hold as right today that we might look back on 20 or 30 years from now and realize we acted poorly? History tells us these wrongs have always been here. And we are not exempt, for they have been there in every generation. But don't get me wrong. I'm glad we see these evils, even if it is in hindsight. But might there be a way to see them sooner or even more often in the present before we end up acting on them? I believe this is what Jesus is dancing with in our gospel passage. He is telling us about the kingdom and inviting kingdom living. But what is that? Not a kingdom of dominance in the seen world, but a kingdom of love that is connected with the unseen world. His parables are full of this way of living, where what we think is right has to be held Gently, softly. Our best guesses about the right might motivate us to plant seeds, but our parable tells us that we cannot make those seeds grow. The growth happens in an unseen and unique way. And in these parables, in our passages and the passages before this, and that they are parables is significant... Jesus is talking about the kingdom, the unseen world, the world of spirit, the world of intangibility. And for us, it seems like an abstraction. But for Jesus, it was more real than the seen world. Parables, stories, the Sermon on the Mount were not just idealistic abstractions for him, and neither should they be for us. Yes, we live and we breathe in the seen world. And his message is that when we only dwell in an awareness of the seen world, we will use manipulation or even force to get the consequences we feel are needed. Every year I plant seeds in my garden and then marvel as I stand back and watch them grow. I can create a space for the possibility of growth, But the growth is not my doing. And this year I tried to manipulate or speed up the growth by adding a lot of manure to the garden. I planted the seeds, they sprouted, and died. Too much manure. Too much manipulation. As my wife said, too much schmidt. I had to retill the ground and replant. It was too much, too soon. And I learned in hindsight. In hindsight, we have learned that we shouldn't plant white man seeds in native soil and expect a white man to grow. Only universal seeds will grow in all of our gardens. The seeds of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All of those seeds exist in all cultures. There's no law that can manipulate or control those. You plant them and let them grow in freedom. And I begin to notice how often Jesus dives into parables whenever someone calls to him with an ideology that they are convinced was right, especially if they then attached an action plan to force it to happen. The fruits of the Spirit know no us and them. And parables and stories are one of the main ways Jesus links this unseen world, the world of the kingdom, and the seen world, the world where we live. This is hard for us. But might a more intentional connection with the unseen world save us from the ill-conceived manipulation of what we think is right in the moment? Over and over again in the scriptures, Jesus uses parables, metaphors, stories to invite our seen world to stay connected with the unseen world. Where was the Sermon on the Mount in the minds of the founders of the residential program? Where were the parables about the kingdom? The divine kingdom of love had been replaced by an earthly kingdom of domination— This unseen world is not just an abstract idea. Every happening, great and small, is a parable whereby God speaks to us. The art of living is to get the message. And the first response must always be awe. Why couldn't we see that sense of awe in Native people's connection, with nature and their creator, on their terms? Why couldn't we see their connection with the unseen world and how it impacted their seen world? And why has it taken until now to see the seeds that grow in their garden? Might it have been because we lost connection with the unseen world? Ah, a sense of wonder must always come before action or else it will become manipulative and awful. And without the unseen, the seen inevitably becomes obscene. Myth, metaphor, paradox, parables, even music and art keep the seen world tied to the unseen world. They put us in a place of awe and keep us guessing, searching, and they keep us humble. They make us stop and ponder. Solitude and time and nature carry the same possibility. Even doubt can serve to keep us humble. It's dangerous to not allow doubt. Certainty in the seen world will usually create judgmental people. Both sides in a war or family scrap seldom doubt their own point of view. But doubt about their own rightness and about our own rightness makes us better listeners and noticers. It encourages what I want to call a good uncertainty when the seen world alone often encourages a bad certainty. And so doubt can be a constant reminder that there is an undefinable and sacred connection between the seen and the unseen world. Doubt... Uncertainty, paradox, parabolic language, myth, metaphor keep us humble. Our certainty is transformed into this is our best guess at the moment. And our best guess is always open to new perceptions and insights. And this humility will reduce the necessity of hindsight to confront confront past wrongs. We learn to listen more than to tell. And lastly, parables, the Sermon on the Mount, metaphors, music and art, and doubt, they also carry a mythic invitation. I was brought up to believe that a myth is a lie because it never happened. However, God never happened. God always was. I am what I am, he said. James Hillman says a myth is something that never happened but is always true. Like God. And he pushes this image further. He says, The abstract, this is a mouthful, is the concrete wearing a party mask. The abstract is the concrete wearing a party mask. Now, there's a mouthful. And when the unseen world enters the seen world, we call that incarnation, then the party begins. And then we are really living in harmony choosing the tree of life rather than preoccupied with the tree of knowledge of who's right and who's wrong. And so without a connection to the unseen world, the realm of the kingdom, our actions in the seen world easily become obscene. And then only in hindsight do we realize the wrongness of our actions. But when the unseen world, unseen life, connects with our seen life, we follow that wonderful description of the good, the true, and the beautiful from Micah 6. He has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. For our day, I like how Eugene Peterson has paraphrased this verse. But he's already made it plain how to live, what to do, what God is looking for in men and women. It's quite simple. Do what is fair and just to your neighbor. Be compassionate and loyal in your love. And don't take yourself too seriously. Take God seriously. Take the unseen world seriously. And in this way, humility arises from the interplay of the unseen with the seen world, and the divine will emerges on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.